Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University, and we're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. There is a lot going on in the world, but healthcare doesn't stand still even as we bear witness to unthinkable violence. We don't have a guest today, but Harlan, you and I have a lot to catch up on in the area of healthcare and COVID. So what, what is top of mind for you? Yeah, I wanted to start again with COVID. There's an interesting thing brewing that probably people should take notice of. And there was a nice tutorial uh, that I saw this week from a guy by the name of Ulrich Elling, who's a scientist in Germany, and, and hat tip to Topol, who's usually my source for picking up on tweets that I don't see right away. And uh, Elling was talking about the next variant. So let me just say, I think we've been in a kind of sweet spot since last February. We've been in a period where, yes, there's been some spread of, of four and five and, you know, variants have been coming through the pike. But people have gotten sick, but largely it seems like in highly vaccinated areas, the excess mortality, the increased number of deaths over what might be expected has not commensurately risen like it has in prior waves. And so somehow this pandemic has been, to the extent that it, it will ever be, has been under control. We haven't been overrun in the hospitals. People have gotten sick. People stayed home from work. It's not that it hasn't been inconvenient. And it's not that people haven't died, especially those who are unvaccinated, still at risk. But in highly vaccinated areas, like I said, in, at least in the last several months, it seems like we've been in a situation where there haven't been a lot of excess deaths. That's led the nation, I believe, to become quite complacent about this. You know, as you know, and we've discussed previously, Howie, Congress has yet to really uh, endorse with a large amount of support the strategies that we need to prepare us for the future. And as you look around the country, most people, I believe, have the sense that, that we've gotten back to normal, that things aren't quite what they were. But I, I think I'm here to say that if you look down the pike, it's just going to be, I think, a world where this is just going to circulate for whoever knows how long. And we're going to be sort of in a position where it depends on the variant as to what the what what's going to happen in society that is with regard to the harm and it'll be up to us to try to find strategies that will mitigate these variants that come out that are tougher and and harder so all this is sort of prelude to say that there's one coming down the pike that is concerning so one of the issues about these variants people may hear about this thing called ntd the n-terminal domain. It describes a place within the, the spike protein. Now, everybody almost knows now that there's a spike protein that is what most of the antibodies are directed against. The vaccines were helping us to produce antibodies to that spike protein. Everyone's has sort of seen this ball with spikes, you know, coming out from it. And it's those spikes that, that have been the targets. And within that spike, there's a, there's a, a region that has been critically important for those antibodies to attack that have helped us to protect ourselves against the, 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 uh, the coronavirus. And what's coming down the pike is a thing called BA 2.75 that may be a new lineage to worry about because unlike a lot of things we've seen before, there are a lot of mutations in that area that is so important, so critical to our protection. And it looks like it's an evolutionary jump from the BA2, and it's been seen mostly in India at this point. 
but it's spreading really rapidly. We have yet to really see it in the United States. Well, what people are concerned about is that it's on its way. And a couple of the things I think uh, uh, to note about it is that it's, it really is that these mutations within this variant are right around those binding sites for the antibodies, right around those areas that are providing the most protection. And some people are saying that this variant is even more infectious than anything we've even seen before. And when people try to provide a benchmark for infectivity, they talk about measles. Measles is one of the most infectious viruses that, that we have. And some people are suggesting, and I saw Hutis, who's a Yale grad, uh, was actually in my class, a terrific scientist and has been a, a really courageous spokesperson on behalf of very sensible public health measures within the pandemic has also uh, said this, which is that the relative transmission could be could be rivaling what we see in measles. And uh, and that's getting everybody really uh, concerned. That is uh, those are, who are in that that's fair. Now, look, everything, you know, it depends on what happens as things spread. And all these are speculation at this point. But it, it's just, again, sort of doubling down on this notion that that we're not through this. And, and we've got to figure out what our steady state's going to look like that allows us to be agile so that when we're threatened by something that is evolving towards something more dangerous and more transmissible, that we're able to quickly ratchet down the kind of uh, behaviors that may help spread this. And the question is, can we find a balance where we can keep our economy going, where we can help people to live their lives, but take the most effective steps that we can in order to at least slow the spread a bit so that we're not overwhelmed with some variant that, that again, rivals measles. So that that's, that is on my mind. I thought this was a concerning set of circumstances and I don't know if you've heard about it or if you've you've had any thoughts yeah on it. no look I continue to be worried about the fact that we are relying a lot on previous um, immunity from both infection and vaccination and that we haven't really been challenged with something that evades that immunity completely or or nearly um, the one thing I will say that comforts me at the moment obviously with omicron variants, is that I'm still seeing a lot of people coming into the ER with COVID. I'm seeing almost no radiographic COVID as I did a few months ago. I mean, uh, you know, in January, February. So that's a favorable thing to me. We've had a very high prevalence of positive cases in Connecticut. We're seeing very little actual morbidity relative to what we have in the past. That could change a lot in September, October. As you point out, it could become both a new variant that evades um, our current immunity, it could be more infectious, it could have different symptoms, um, which we've seen over time. And, and to the point that you've been making consistently, we still have no answers about whether the second infection or the third infection uh, has a, a meaningful risk of long COVID relative to first infections. Uh, we don't have answers to that yet. Well, and one of the things, well, we, there was an article that came out that said the more times you're infected, the higher your risk of long-term problems. The issue, I think, is that what you're describing is is that period that, that I mentioned in which we have not seen excess deaths. But the question is, what's the next variant? And you're, you're projecting to the fall, that is sort of believing that this has a seasonality to it. Maybe there's a hiatus still in the summer, hard to know. Um, and then, of course, there's this looming thing about long COVID that sits around all the time. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people that I interact with 
who are suffering terribly with a, a life that has been unraveled since the infection with COVID. And in addition, you know, I raised this before, we should have a whole, I think we should have a whole episode talking about vaccine injury. There's people who believe that they've been injured from the vaccine who have a, a very compelling story about it, who were previously very healthy. And, and we're turning away from those people because we're afraid to talk about potential adverse consequences of the vaccine because it's in the milieu of everybody trying to avoid this sort of anti-vax mentality. Both things can be true. The vaccine can be a large net positive, and there still can be some small number of people who are devastatingly harmed by it. And we've really got to approach this scientifically, not be afraid of it politically, but to be concerned about what people are experiencing and, and lean forward into it. So I think all these areas are, you know, there's the acute manifestations, there's some variants around the block, and then there are the consequences of what we're doing, whether it be with regard to interventions or whether it's regard to the virus itself. This is remains a very important area. I'll give you one other caveat about this that concerns me. I am not seeing scientists tack toward this area. There's a there's a small number of scientists who are deeply involved in many of these issues, especially long-term consequences. I think most people, first of all, there's no existing cadre of scientists who have been focused on this area. And second of all, it's a very high-risk thing to do for your career, not knowing how long is this going to last, what, what are the issues, what are funding, what's funding going to be like. Are people going to take these patients seriously, given that we have yet to have objective reflections of their biology that suggest, you know, to monitor them and so forth? And what field does it fall in? It's not really infectious disease. It, it's sort of immunology, rheumatology, some it's neurology, some it's cardiology. So these are these are also things that concern me. Who, who are the scientists that are really going to devote their lives to this? It's not clear. So, and, and, and one limitation we have is we have uh, a very, very um, scattered healthcare system in this country, if you want to call it a healthcare system at all. But it's surprising to me that even the UK and Israel, which have more nationalized healthcare delivery, have not been able to generate that specific type of data that we would like to have that would answer some of these questions. We're just not seeing it. And, and I think you're right. A lot of uh, public health people and modelers have invested their efforts in COVID. Not as many clinical trialists and uh, people who are invested in large ongoing cohort studies in the way that uh, Amy Justice, our prior guest, uh, has been involved in. Yeah, so I don't know. The take home for me is that I think as a society, we need to take all these things really seriously. We need to continue to invest in new knowledge about it. And I think for the public, we need to help people know, you know, that there are sensible measures people can take that don't mean that they need to isolate themselves completely or that they have to withdraw from life or that are going to wreck the economy. But that, you know, there are ways to operate that can still be sensible. And we need to, to be monitoring the environment when there are very few cases of COVID and COVID isn't causing much problem. That's one scenario that requires a very different response than one where hospitals begin to be overrun. People are getting sick and they're in the illness is highly threatening to their lives. Let me ask you this, Harlan. I saw you tweeted about this and this is a long-standing question of, you know, do various fish oil tablets over the counter as well as uh, some types of prescriptions, do they work or not? And there was this fascinating uh, recent publication that you're very well versed in. I'd love to hear your take on that and particularly even explaining to us why this is such a big concern after decades of people making such recommendations. Yeah, let's pivot off COVID for a minute and try to see what can go 
in another direction. In cardiology, we're always looking to see what can we do next that might be able to lower people's risk. And we're concerned that even people who have very good control of their risk factors, many of those people still suffer from heart disease. And so we call that residual risk. You know, people still have risk despite the fact that we've we've done a good job controlling blood pressure and, and their LDL cholesterol, the, that bad cholesterol and so forth. And so we're, we're always on the hunt for, for what's what can we do better, what can we do next? And, and one of the things that has reared its head from time to time is this question of, you know, what about fish oil? What about fish oil? You know, almost everyone's heard about, you know, the idea that fish oil can do this or that. How does it help you? Lots of people, American Heart Association suggests that people should be eating fish, especially oily fish that has these sort of what's thought to be healthy oils, you know. So this is our, these are fatty acids that we think by some way or another helps to improve heart health. Well, turns out over the years, it's been a highly contentious area without clear resolution. There have been some times where studies have suggested maybe it's helpful, and then almost soon after, another study suggests it's not helpful. And then there are many different kinds of these fish oils. And, and so one company got approval to sell fish oil for its effect on lowering triglycerides. So for people who've got elevated triglycerides, sometimes they can be at elevated risk. One of the the nuances of the way that the FDA works is in approving something for lowering triglycerides, people don't actually have to show that they improve health outcomes. And this has been a problem, this disconnect, because you can actually make someone's labs look better and actually end up causing higher risk even than, than you might have thought. And there's plenty of examples of that where, for example, drugs that, that many drugs, by the way, that lowered triglycerides, niacin, for example, and uh, gemfibrozole is another fibrates, you know, that were used for a long time. They were advertised everywhere on billboards at all of our national meetings because they lowered triglycerides. And it took a while before the studies came out and said, hey, by the way, your labs look better, but but people didn't have better outcomes. And and in some in some cases, we've, we've seen worse outcomes in situations like that, right? With diabetes drugs, where we saw better glycemic control, but worse cardiovascular risk. So I've been beating this drum for a long time is that we really need to be looking at outcomes, like what actually happens to patients. There was another study that Pfizer ran on a drug they were just about to start selling and had decided to do an outcomes trial on. I don't think they would have been mandated to do so. They could have just sold it because it made the good cholesterol look so much better. And it turned out that people died at greater rates who got that drug. And inexplicably, nobody could even even now tell us why that happened. But we really needed to do the experiment to find out. So so this drug, icosapentate ethyl, is a pharmaceutical-grade fish oil that was tested in a randomized trial called Reduce It. And the trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in January of 2019, had a blockbuster finding. I mean, a jaw-dropping result. They, they, they randomized about 8,000 people, and, and it had about a 25% reduction in risk. 25% reduction in risk. I mean, we almost have never seen that. that was better than statins. And, you know, I think a lot of us were sitting there going like, gosh, you know, that's unexpected. I mean, we would, were wondering whether it would have any benefit, but that big effect, 25% reduction for, for essentially, you, you know, a dietary supplement. I mean, this is pharmaceutical grade. It's, you know, it's made a little bit differently, but it's an oil and taking an oil. So a lot of people were really celebrating this. It got into the guidelines, been promoted. People were, were really happy about this. By the way, this study went for about five years. And it was a, looked like it was a very well-conducted study, like I said, in New England Journal of Medicine, top journal. Well, in the course of 
getting the approval from the FDA, it came out that in the placebo group, they had used mineral oil. And in that mineral oil group, some of the biomarkers, some of the, the things that we measure of risk, like LDL cholesterol, actually went up in the mineral oil group. And uh, C-reactive protein, a marker of inflammation, went up in the mineral oil group and didn't really change in the ethyl group. This is uh, uh, Vasepa is the name that it was being sold under. And people started raising the question, well, maybe, maybe this trial was using a non-neutral comparator. Maybe the placebo wasn't neutral at all. It was actually worsening outcomes. Maybe there's something about the mineral oil they were using. And they picked the mineral oil because they wanted something of the same consistency as the oil, kind of, you know, felt like an oil. But Because you, know, you want it to be, if you want to keep it double blind, you want to give somebody something that's going to seem similar. I mean, it made sense. Well, and there was another trial of a different type of fish oil, but kind of similar, that used corn oil, which, which didn't have, find this effect and found no benefit of the fish oil, essentially, the, the kind of oil we're talking about. So now, just recently, over the last week, the authors of the original trial had gone back and looked at not only LDL and, and the inflammatory marker uh, C-reactive protein, but they looked at a whole bunch of measures that are known to be associated with atherosclerotic coronary disease, the hardening of the arteries. And almost in every case, these, these went in the wrong direction in that placebo group. And it, you know, it was, they looked at it at 12 months and at 24 months and it got worse over time. Even like this marker of inflammation, we all know inflammation is not good and it can actually cause risk of heart disease. And for these individuals who got the mineral oil, it went up almost 40% in the mineral oil group. It almost didn't change at all in the, in the fish oil group. So this has started to unravel this trial and has raised this question. Let's see, we're in 2022. This thing comes out January 2019. It takes us this long to kind of learn this. And thank goodness the authors went out and they really did the study. And they went out and said, you know, the truth is now we can't tell whether this is effective. You need to do another trial. That's what they said in the paper. And the editorialist also endorsed that. They, they, of course, the trialists, some of the trialists still believe in the med, still believe that it's effective. But everybody's saying that this has thrown a big wrench into into the evidence about it. And only thing I think is like, you know, what can we do? To, we should have learned this faster. Like it shouldn't have taken us this long. This drug's been selling. There was a whole big thing. The, the stock price is down because they lost the patent on it. So it's gone generic. But there's still a lot of people promoting it. And I would tell all patients taking it now that, you know. We don't know. We yeah. don't know. We now, don't know. Let me ask you this, though. Mineral oil is used by a lot of people still uh, for various treatments, you know, as a, and it's sold over the counter. Uh, is, how, do we do, how do we get the answer to whether mineral oil might be very dangerous in ways that we've never considered? Well, I mean, you know, like maybe there's mineral oil and there's mineral oil, but, you know, this mineral oil was, was identified to mimic the color and consistency of the, of the drug, the act, what drug that they thought was going to be active, and it would give me pause to take mineral oil as a means to improve my health, given that in this case, mineral oil, which I think, you know, obviously this is a big trial. They spent a lot of money, spent a lot of time. The the assumption was that this was going to be inert if at best, right? And and would be a fair comparator. Didn't turn out that way. I don't know if anyone's listening who's taking mineral oil, you might want to go to yeah. another, it, another I placebo. Mean, it truly worried me when I, I kept reading more and more and realizing just how much we don't know about things that we absolutely assume are you know non-toxic at the very least 
you know, at the very worst, mineral oil might leach out some nutrients or something, but we've never considered it for anything worse than that. Yeah, and, and, and who knows the mechanism? I mean, it, it, these people were largely on statins. Maybe it blocked absorption. I mean, I don't know what it did, but for these people in this trial, it seems like it was not was not neutral and, and in fact, increased their risk of adverse events. So it's not proven, but it doesn't look like it was good for them. So, so one of the things that you, you know, you're involved in publications, both as an author, as an editor, in, in many different ways. And I'd be curious to get your take on whether we have the right funding mechanisms in place to get the answers to the big questions we have. Like, so just to put it clearly, we have a lot of innovation funded by the NIH and we have a huge amount of innovation funded by clinical trials, by vested interests like uh, pharmaceutical companies and, and biotechnology companies. But there's so many questions out there that don't have uh, a financial motivation or incentive to get them done. And I'm wondering, like, how do we get the big questions answered? Well, I think it's time for us to innovate the way that we do the funding of research. And, you know, you and I have talked to our friend Zeke Emanuel, who we had on the, on, on the podcast, you know, about some of these things. And and the issue is that the way it's configured right now is is very conservatively, you know, and the study sections that sit and judge the value of, you know, and the importance of a particular application are geared in ways that I think don't necessarily enhance the possibility that high-risk applications will be funded. They they find all the problems with them. And, and and so they, I don't know what, but, you know, the culture of the study sections is that we're really looking for ways that people have already solved, you know, what are the major impediments? And this is a high likelihood of success. That's not a path towards innovation. A path towards innovation is a really great idea that's got a lot of potential issues with it. And we want to give people the time to try to figure out how to make it work. I, I like the way the Howard Hughes Medical Institute you know, manages things. They identify investigators. They give them money for a period of time, and then they ask them to show a portfolio of work when they're done. And and the reason I like that is a portfolio of work, as I imagine it, is not just publications, but it's evidence of impact. It's evidence of progress. It's evidence of evolution of thinking. It's solving some of these problems. And if you can convince you know a team when showing a portfolio of work that that the direction is meritorious, then you can continue on that path. Now, of course, we have to be thoughtful about making sure that we're stratifying so that we get young people and older people that we're investing in. We have representative groups we're paying attention to uh, inclusion and so forth as we think about who gets that chance. But general, I mean, NIH's got $42 billion. I mean, it's not, of course, a lot of it's in, intramural, but a lot of it's being sent externally. And I think it may be time to reconsider the approach that we've taken and, and take some risks on on new ways of doing things. Then, as you know, I'm deeply committed to this idea of open science. So how can we hold hands and share the kind of data that we're generating and, and try to help each other to be successful and move faster rather than a culture where I'm doing research, I sequester my own data, it becomes mine to harvest, and it's my competitive advantage against other scientists, as opposed to the idea that we are actually, the enemy is the disease. We're trying to figure out how many smart people can we get working together to make progress about that for the benefit of patients. And then let's figure out how to allocate credit if credit is important. But but let's not continue to march towards a, a you know a, a, a system, march in a system that 
that basically slows progress because of the way you know people are afraid to share and to 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 be open with what they're doing. I'm I'm surprised, and then at the same time not surprised that in a four plus trillion dollar system where there are multiple actors that are enormously profitable, um, that we just still are not able to answer many big questions. And I and I will point out today. Um, I hate to point fingers, but the health plan industry, the health insurance industry over the last 10 or 15 years has been very, very profitable. Um, And we've never actually had any expectation of them asking and getting uh, the big questions answered. They uh, will take advantage of the questions that have been asked by others, but they themselves don't ask the questions, which quite frankly surprises me. Well, and I think there could be, you know, you say big questions. I, I'm always also pushing for the small questions. When I was on the board of PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, that was that was spawned out of the Affordable Care Act, out of Obamacare, to try to address the lack of knowledge we have about particular treatments, there was just a great conservatism about trying new things. I mean, I proposed to them, let's do 100 trials a year on things that people experience, pain, sleep, you know, indigestion, abdominal discomfort, you, you know, there's a whole range of things, shortness of breath. I mean, there are things that, that people feel, and there's a whole bunch of treatments that doctors are prescribing all the time. We've got no idea if they really, really work, and for whom do they work, and in what situation, and at what dose, because they've never been subjected to rigorous randomized trials. And I just said, Epicori, I think because these are about how people feel, you know, we can be getting hundreds of people in a trial rapidly and trying to get some answers. And we could be looking at young people and old people and, uh, you know, all sorts of different patient groups quickly to try to solve these problems. Many of these drugs are billion dollar drugs, you know, Lyrica, you know, Gabby Penton, you know, there, there's just all these kind of drugs that are being put out all the time for which there's really, I wanted Tamiflu to be subjected to that kind of evaluation because Roche had, had, there were holes in what they had done at that time for Tamiflu influenza. Tamiflu is the oral drug for, for influenza. For influenza, Tamiflu. But the couldn't get them to think differently about it. And I also said, if somebody has an idea from a, from a academic institution, let them lead the intellectual part of the study, but don't have them build the infrastructure to actually do the trial. Because what generally happens is each individual academic has to build their own infrastructure in order to do that. It's cumbersome. They're usually not highly efficient. And and it's, it's not what they should be doing. They should be asking the questions and it should go into a machine that's ready to be able to help do this. And that should be a different competitive process about who's going to actually run the trial as opposed to who had the idea to lead the trial. But, you know, I, I'm, you know we just have to keep pushing for this. But I, I think we can't be satisfied with the status quo. That's the main message. You know, we it, just because we've done it that way doesn't mean we should keep doing it that way. And and we should be open to doing things in different ways, in new ways, better ways. Yeah, let's hope. Okay, Howie, let's pivot to your part here. So what's the things that have been on your mind lately? Yeah, I'm going to keep it short today. I do find myself, it's brief, but it's frequent. And I, I hear this from a lot of other people as well, just losing hope as we see women's agency compromised, climate change fostered, gun violence getting worse, uh, and seemingly greater divisions than ever before between our so-called blue states and our red states. But I, I do see green shoots of hope showing up. You know, popular opinion, which so often aligns with party, 
uh, is showing signs of, of delinkage uh, on some key issues. 61% of people in this country believe that women should have some, if not most, rights to abortion. 59% believe in sensible gun reforms going well beyond what we've actually just passed through Congress and signed into law. And 68% of Americans are somewhat or very worried about climate change. So I'm a believer in competitive markets, not just in economic and financial terms, but in the market of ideas. And even as I am you know, truly saddened by so much death and division around me, I can be heartened that the messages are, in fact, getting through. The more we can bring ideas, facts, data to people, rather than talking just politics, the better we will be. Absolutely agree with that. It, it, you know, we need to get people away from sort of just reflexively going with behaviors because they think it represents a signal of alignment with a particular ideology or a particular party. And that's where I think we were with the pandemic, which is just people were lining up on two sides just simply because it, it identified them as being part of a mo that movement or that group. And I'd rather get people thinking for themselves for, you know, discussing openly on both sides, all sides. And, and try to drive consensus within the country. I mean, this thing in Highland Park, I don't know. I mean, is it that crazy that we should say, like, who the heck should be buying assault weapons? I mean, you know, and let alone an 18-year-old who's got a police record, who's been investigated. It's just, it's just beyond comprehension that we can't come together on this. Yeah, we all know the things that can help. We also know all the, the arguments that people will make and why they're shallow. Um, but we are stuck where we are. Um, but I think yeah. I'm, I'm seeing green shoots because I really do believe that people are starting to become more aware of how shallow those arguments can be. Well, I'm loving the green shoots, man. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's hope so because this country's got to find some way out of this hole. So you've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. That's health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm also fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu backslash EMBA. All right, so as a final thing here, how did you get to be known as the Howie? Yeah, so it's, I, we've talked about this before. I'll give you the very quick rundown. In and about 1991, I was a radiology resident at WashU. I was waxing on about some topic, as you and I tend to do on the podcast right now. And uh, somebody knowing that I was the representation of New York there and with a certain real estate developer in the news at that time, finally making sort of national presence known, somebody referred to me as the Howard. Um, which was supposed to be a reflection of the Donald. And um, at that moment in time, I oh said, God. I'm not the, not the Howard, I'm, I'm the Howie. 
And uh, I stuck with that over the years as a joke. I didn't realize the linkage between you and Donald Trump. This is really Yeah, nice. thir 31 years. Yeah, it goes back 31 years. Don't forget, you grew up in Brooklyn. You know about the Trump family from the time you're like seven years old. So <laughs> he was not somebody that I had great appreciation or, quite frankly, respect for. That's so funny. Elton Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Talk to you soon, the Howie. <laughs> Thanks, Harlan. Talk to you soon.